Section 20 of The Oxford Book of American Essays Chosen by Brander Matthews This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 20 Dante and the Bowery by Theodore Roosevelt It is the conventional thing to praise Dante because he of set purpose used the language of the marketplace so as to be understanded of the common people but we do not in practice either admire or understand a man who writes in the language of our own marketplace it must be the florentine marketplace of the thirteenth century not fulton market of today what infinite use dante would have made of the bowery of course he could have done it only because not merely he himself, the great poet, but his audience also, would have accepted it as natural. The nineteenth century was more apt than the thirteenth to boast of itself as being the greatest of the centuries, but save as regards purely material objects, ranging from locomotives to bank buildings, it did not wholly believe in its boasting. A nineteenth-century poet when trying to illustrate some point he was making, obviously felt uncomfortable in mentioning nineteenth-century heroes if he also referred to those of classic times, lest he should be suspected of instituting comparisons between them. A thirteenth-century poet was not in the least troubled by any such misgivings, and quite simply illustrated his point by allusions to any character in history or romance, ancient or contemporary, that happened to occur to him. Of all the poets of the nineteenth century, Walt Whitman was the only one who dared use the Bowery, that is, use anything that was striking and vividly typical of the humanity around him, as Dante used the ordinary humanity of his day. And even Whitman was not quite natural in doing so, for he always felt that he was defying the conventions and prejudices of his neighbors, and his self-consciousness made him a little defiant. Dante was not defiant of conventions. The conventions of his day did not forbid him to use human nature just as he saw it, no less than human nature as he read about it. The Bowery is one of the great highways of humanity, a highway of seething life, of varied interest, of fun, of work, of sordid and terrible tragedy, and it is haunted by demons as evil as any that stalk through the pages of the Inferno. But no man of Dante's art and with Dante's soul would write of it nowadays, and he would hardly be understood if he did. Whitman wrote of homely things and everyday men and of their greatness, but his art was not equal to his power and his purpose. And even as it was, he, the poet, by set intention of the democracy, is not known to the people as widely as he should be known. And it is only the few, the men like Edward Fitzgerald, John Burroughs, and W. E. Henley, who prize him as he ought to be prized. Nowadays, at the outset of the twentieth century, cultivated people would ridicule the poet who illustrated fundamental truths, as Dante did six hundred years ago, by examples drawn alike from human nature as he saw it around him, and from human nature as he read of it. I suppose that this must be partly because we are so self-conscious as always to read a comparison into any illustration forgetting the fact that no comparison is implied between two men, in the sense of estimating their relative greatness or importance, when the career of each of them is chosen merely to illustrate some given quality that both possess. It is also probably due to the fact that an age in which the critical faculty is greatly developed often tends to develop a certain querulous inability to understand the fundamental truths which less critical ages accept as a matter of course. To such critics it seems improper, and indeed ludicrous, 
to illustrate human nature by examples chosen alike from the brooklyn navy yard or castle garden and the piraeus alike from tammany and from the roman mob organized by the foes or friends of caesar to dante such feeling itself would have been inexplicable dante dealt with those tremendous qualities of the human soul which dwarf all differences in outward and visible form and station and therefore he illustrated what he meant by any example that seemed to him apt only the great names of antiquity had been handed down and so when he spoke of pride or violence or flattery and wished to illustrate his thesis by an appeal to the past he could speak only of great and prominent characters but in the present of his day most of the men he knew or knew of were naturally people of no permanent importance just as is the case in the present of our own day yet the passions of these men were the same as those of the heroes of old godlike or demoniac and so he unhesitatingly used his contemporaries or his immediate predecessors to illustrate his points without regard to their prominence or lack of prominence he was not concerned with the differences in their fortunes and careers with their heroic proportions or lack of such proportions he was a mystic whose imagination soared so high and whose thoughts plumbed so deeply the far depths of our being that he was also quite simply a realist for the eternal mysteries were ever before his mind and compared to them the differences between the careers of the mighty masters of mankind and the careers of even very humble people seemed trivial if we translate his comparisons into the terms of our day we are apt to feel amused over this trait of his until we go a little deeper and understand that we are ourselves to blame because we have lost the faculty simply and naturally to recognize that the essential traits of humanity are shown alike by big men and by little men in the lives that are now being lived and in those that are long ended probably no two characters in dante impress the ordinary reader more than farinata and capenius the man who raises himself waist-high from out of his burning sepulchre unshaken by torment and the man who with scornful disdain refuses to brush from his body the falling flames the great souls magnanimous dante calls them whom no torture no disaster no failure of the most absolute kind could force to yield or to bow before the dread powers that had mastered them dante has created these men has made them permanent additions to the great figures of the world they are imaginary only in the sense that achilles and ulysses are imaginary that is they are now as real as the figures of any man that ever lived one of them was a mythical hero in a mythical feat the other a second-rate faction leader in a faction-ridden italian city of the thirteenth century whose deeds have not the slightest importance aside from what dante's mention gives yet the two men are mentioned as naturally as alexander and caesar are mentioned evidently they are dwelt upon at length because dante felt it his duty to express a peculiar horror for that fierce pride which could defy its overlord while at the same time and perhaps unwillingly he could not conceal a certain shuddering admiration for the lofty courage on which this evil pride was based the point i wish to make is the simplicity with which dante illustrated one of the principles on which he lays most stress by the example of a man who was of consequence only in the history of the parochial politics of florence farinata will now live forever as a symbol of the soul yet as an historical figure he is dwarfed beside any one of hundreds of the leaders in our own revolution and civil war tom benton of missouri and jefferson davis of mississippi were opposed to one another with a bitterness which surpassed that which rived asunder guelph from gibbelin or black 
Guelph from White Guelph. They played many parts in a tragedy more tremendous than any which any medieval city ever witnessed or could have witnessed. Each possessed an iron will and undaunted courage, physical and moral. Each led a life of varied interest and danger, and exercised a power not possible in the career of the Florentine. One, the champion of the Union, fought for his principles as unyieldingly as the other fought for what he deemed right in trying to break up the Union. Each was a colossal figure. Each, when the forces against which he fought overcame him, for in his latter years Benton saw the cause of disunion triumph in Missouri, just as Jefferson Davis lived to see the cause of union triumph in the nation, fronted an adverse fate with the frowning defiance, the high heart, and the stubborn will which Dante has commemorated for all time in his hero who held hell in great scorn. Yet a modern poet who endeavoured to illustrate such a point by reference to Benton and Davis would be uncomfortably conscious that his audience would laugh at him. He would feel ill at ease, and therefore would convey the impression of being ill at ease, exactly as he would feel that he was posing, was forced and unnatural, if he referred to the deeds of the evil heroes of the Paris Commune, as he would without hesitation refer to the many similar but smaller leaders of riots in the Roman Forum. Dante speaks of a couple of French troubadours, or of a local Sicilian poet, just as he speaks of Euripides, and quite properly, for they illustrate as well what he has to teach. But we of today could not possibly speak of a couple of recent French poets or German novelists in the same connection without having an uncomfortable feeling that we ought to defend ourselves from possible misapprehension, and therefore we could not speak of them naturally. When Dante wishes to assail those guilty of crimes of violence, he in one stanza speaks of the torments inflicted by divine justice on Attila, coupling him with Pyrrhus and Sextus Pompey, a sufficiently odd conjunction in itself, by the way, and in the next stanza mentions the names of a couple of local highwaymen who had made travel unsafe in particular neighborhoods. The two highwaymen in question were by no means as important as Jesse James and Billy the Kid. Doubtless they were far less formidable fighting men, and their adventures were less striking and varied. Yet think of the way we should feel of a great poet should now arise who would incidentally illustrate the ferocity of the human heart by allusions both to the terrible Hunnish scourge of God and to the outlaws who in our own times defy justice in Missouri and New Mexico. When Dante wishes to illustrate the fierce passions of the human heart, he may speak of Lycurgus or of Saul, or he may speak of two local contemporary captains victor or vanquished in obscure struggles between guelph and ghibelin men like jacopo del casero or buconte whom he mentions as naturally as he does cyrus or rehoboam he is entirely right what one among our own writers however would be able simply and naturally to mention ulrich dolgreen or custer or Morgan, or Raphael Semmes, or Marion, or Sumter, as illustrating the qualities shown by Hannibal, or Rameses, or William the Conqueror, or by Moses, or Hercules. Yet the Guelph and Ghibelin captains of whom Dante speaks were in no way as important as these American soldiers of the second or third rank. Dante saw nothing incongruous in treating at length the qualities of all of them. He was not thinking of comparing the genius of the unimportant local leader with the genius of the great sovereign conquerors of the past. He was thinking only of the qualities of courage and daring and of the awful horror of death. And when we deal with what is elemental in the human soul, it matters but little whose soul we take. 
in the same way he mentions a couple of spendthrifts of padua and siena who come to violent ends just as in the preceding canto he had dwelt upon the tortures undergone by dionysius and simon de montfort guarded by nessus and his fellow centaurs for some reason he hated the spendthrifts in question as the whigs of revolutionary south carolina and new york hated tarleton kruger st leger and delancey and to him there was nothing incongruous in drawing a lesson from one couple of offenders more than from another it would by the way be outside my present purpose to speak of the rather puzzling manner in which dante confounds his own hatreds with those of heaven and for instance shows a vindictive enjoyment in putting his personal opponent filippo argenti in hell for no clearly adequate reason when he turns from those whom he is glad to see in hell toward those for whom he cares he shows the same delightful power of penetrating through the externals into the essentials cato and manfred illustrate his point no better than Bellacqua, a contemporary florentine maker of citherns alas what poet to-day would dare to illustrate his argument by introducing steinway in company with cato and manfred yet again when examples of love are needed he draws them from the wedding feast at cana from the actions of palades and orestes and from the life of a kindly honest comb-dealer of siena who had just died could we now link together peter cooper and palades without feeling a sense of incongruity he couples Priscian with a politician of local note who had written an encyclopedia and a lawyer of distinction who had lectured at bologna and oxford we could not now with such a fine unconsciousness bring evarts and one of the compilers of the encyclopedia britannica into a life comparison when dante deals with the crimes which he most abhorred simony and baratry he flails offenders of his age who were of the same type as those who in our days flourish by political or commercial corruption and he names his offenders both those just dead and those still living and puts them popes and politicians alike in hell there have been trust magnates and politicians and editors and magazine writers in our own country whose lives and deeds were no more edifying than those of the men who lie in the third and the fifth chasm of the eighth circle of the inferno yet for a poet to name those men would be condemned as an instance of shocking taste one age expresses itself naturally in a form that would be unnatural and therefore undesirable in another age we do not express ourselves nowadays in epics at all and we keep the emotions aroused in us by what is good or evil in the men of the present in a totally different compartment from that which holds our emotions concerning what was good or evil in the men of the past an imitation of the letter of the times past when the spirit has wholly altered would be worse than useless and the very qualities that help to make dante's poem immortal would if copied nowadays make the copyist ridiculous nevertheless it would be a good thing if we could in some measure achieve the mighty florentine's high simplicity of soul at least to the extent of recognizing in those around us the eternal qualities which we admire or condemn in the men who wrought in the men who wrought good or evil at any stage in the world's previous history dante's masterpiece is one of the supreme works of art that the ages have witnessed but he would have been the last to wish that it should be treated only as a work of art or worshipped only for art's sake without reference to the dread lessons it teaches mankind from history as literature and other essays by theodore roosevelt copyright 1913 by charles scribner's sons
the revolt of the unfit by nicholas murray butler there are wars and rumors of wars in a portion of the territory occupied by the doctrine of organic evolution all is not working smoothly and well and according to formula it begins to appear that those men of science who having derived the doctrine of organic evolution in its modern form from observations on earthworms on climbing plants and on brightly colored birds and who then straightway applied it blithely to men and his affairs have made enemies of no small part of the human race it was all well enough to treat some earthworms some climbing plants and some brightly colored birds as fit and others as unfit to survive but when this distinction is extended over human beings and their economic social and political affairs there is a general pricking up of ears the consciously fit look down on the resulting discussion with complacent scorn the consciously unfit rage and roar loudly while the unconsciously unfit bestir themselves mightily to overturn the whole theory upon which the distinction between fitness and unfitness rests if any law of nature makes so absurd a distinction as that then the offending and obnoxious law must be repealed and that quickly the trouble appears to arise primarily from the fact that man does not like what may be termed his evolutionary poor relations he is willing enough to read about earthworms and climbing plants and brightly colored birds but he does not want nature to be making leaps from any of these to him the earthworm which not being adapted to its surroundings soon dies unhonored and unsung passes peacefully out of life without either a coroner's inquest an indictment for earthworm slaughter a legislative proposal for the future protection of earthworms or even a new society for the reform of the social and economic state of the earthworms that are left even the quasi-intelligent climbing plant and the brightly colored bird humanely vain find an equally inconspicuous fate awaiting them this is the way nature operates when unimpeded or unchallenged by the powerful manifestations of human revolt or human revenge of course if man understood the place assigned to him in nature by the doctrine of organic evolution as well as the earthworm the climbing plant and the brightly colored bird understand theirs he too like them would submit to nature's processes and decrees without a protest as a matter of logic no doubt he ought to but after all these centuries it is still a far cry from logic to life in fact man unless he is consciously and admittedly fit revolts against the implication of the doctrine of evolution and objects both to being considered unfit to survive and succeed and to being forced to accept the only fate which nature offers to those who are unfit for survival and success indeed he manifests with amazing pertinacity what schopenhauer used to call the will to live and considerations and arguments based on adaptability to environment have no weight with him so much the worse for environment he cries and straightway sets out to prove it on the other hand those humans who are classed by the doctrine of evolution as fit exhibit a most disconcerting satisfaction with things as they are the fit make no conscious struggle for existence they do not have to being fit they survive ipso facto thus does the doctrine of evolution like a playful kitten merrily pursue its tail with rapturous delight the fit survive those survive who are fit nothing could be more simple those who are not adapted to the conditions that surround them however rebel against the fate of the earthworm and the climbing plant and the brightly colored bird and engage in a conscious struggle for existence and for success in that existence despite their inappropriate environment 
statutes can be repealed or amended why not laws of nature as well those human beings who are unfit have it must be admitted one great though perhaps temporary advantage over the laws of nature for the laws of nature have not yet been granted suffrage and the organized unfit can always lead a large majority to the polls so soon as knowledge of this fact becomes common property the laws of nature will have a bad quarter of an hour in more countries than one the revolt of the unfit primarily takes the form of attempts to lessen and to limit competition which is instinctively felt and with reason to be part of the struggle for existence and for success the inequalities which nature makes and without which the process of evolution could not go on the unfit propose to smooth away and to wipe out by that magic fiat of collective human will called legislation the great struggle between the gods of olympus and the titans which the ancient sculptors so loved to picture was child's play compared to the struggle between the laws of nature and the laws of man which the civilized world is apparently soon to be invited to witness this struggle will bear a little examination and it may be that the laws of nature as the doctrine of evolution conceives and states them will not have everything their own way professor huxley whose orthodoxy as an evolutionist will hardly be questioned made a suggestion of this kind in his romaine's lecture as long ago as eighteen ninety three he called attention then to the fact that there is a fallacy in the notion that because on the whole animals and plants have advanced in perfection of organization by means of the struggle for existence and the consequent survival of the fittest therefore men as social and ethical beings must depend upon the same process to help them to perfection as professor huxley suggests this fallacy doubtless has its origin in the ambiguity of the phrase survival of the fittest one jumps to the conclusion that fittest means best whereas of course it has in it no moral element whatever the doctrine of evolution uses the term fitness in a hard and stern sense nothing more is meant by it than a measure of adaptation to surrounding conditions into this conception of fitness there enters no element of beauty no element of morality no element of progress toward an ideal fitness is a cold fact ascertainable with almost mathematical certainty we now begin to catch sight of the real significance of this struggle between the laws of nature and the laws of man from one point of view the struggle is hopeless from the start from another it is full of promise if it be true that man really proposes to halt the laws of nature by his legislation then the struggle is hopeless it is only a question of time when the laws of nature will have their way if on the other hand the struggle between the laws of nature and the laws of man is in reality a mock struggle and the supposed combat merely an exhibition of evolutionary boxing then we may find a clue to what is really going on it might be worth while for example to follow up the suggestion that in looking back over the whole series of products of organic evolution the real successes and permanences of life are to be found among those species that have been able to institute something like what we call a social system wherever an individual insists upon treating himself as an end in himself and all other individuals as his actual or potential competitors or enemies then the fate of the earthworm the climbing plant and the brightly colored bird is sure to be his for he has brought himself under the jurisdiction of one of nature's laws and sooner or later he must succumb to that law of nature and in the struggle for existence his place will be marked out for him by it with unerring precision if however he has developed so far as to have risen to the lofty height of human sympathy and thereby has learned to transcend his individuality to make himself 
a member of a larger whole he may then save himself from the extinction which follows inevitably upon proved unfitness in the individual struggle for existence so soon as the individual has something to give there will be those who have something to give to him and he elevates himself above this relentless law with its inexorable punishments for the unfit at that point when individuals begin to give each to the other then their mutual cooperation and interdependence build human society and participation in that society changes the whole character of the human struggle nevertheless large numbers of human beings carry with them into social and political relations the traditions and instincts of the old individualistic struggle for existence with the laws of organic evolution pointing grimly to their several destinies these are not able to realize that moral elements and what we call progress toward an end or ideal are not found under the operation of the law of natural selection but have to be discovered elsewhere and added to it beauty morality progress have other lurking places than in the struggle for existence and they have for their sponsors other laws than that of natural selection you will read the pages of darwin and of herbert spencer in vain for any indication of how the parthenon was produced how the sistine madonna how the ninth symphony of beethoven how the divine comedy or hamlet or faust there are many mysteries in the world thank god and these are some of them the escape of genius from the cloud-covered mountaintops of the unknown into human society has not yet been accounted for even rousseau made a mistake when he was writing the contract social it is recorded that his attention was favorably attracted by the island of corsica he being engaged in the process of finding out how to repeal the laws of man by the laws of nature spoke of corsica as the one country in europe that seemed to him capable of legislation this led him to add i have a presentiment that some day this little island will astonish europe it was not long before corsica did astonish europe but not by any capacity for legislation as some clever person has said it let loose napoleon we know nothing more of the origin and advent of genius than that perhaps we should comprehend these things better were it not for the persistence of the superstition that human beings habitually think there is no more persistent superstition than this linnaeus helped it on to an undeserved permanence when he devised the name homo sapiens for the highest species of the order primates that was the quintessence of complementary nomenclature of course human beings as such do not think a real thinker is one of the rarest things in nature he comes only at long intervals in human history and when he does come he is often astonishingly unwelcome indeed he is sometimes speedily sent the way of the unfit and unprotesting earthworm emerson understood this as he understood so many other of the deep things of life for he wrote beware when the great god lets loose a thinker on this planet that all things are at risk the plain fact is that man is not ruled by thinking when man thinks he thinks he usually merely feels and his instincts and feelings are powerful precisely in proportion as they are irrational reason reveals the other side and a knowledge of the other side is fatal to the driving power of a prejudice prejudices have their important uses but it is well to try not to mix them up with principles the underlying principle in the widespread and ominous revolt of the unfit is that moral considerations must outweigh the mere blind struggle for existence in human affairs it is to this fact that we must hold fast if we would understand the world of to-day and still more the world of to-morrow 
the purpose of the revolt of the unfit is to substitute interdependence on a higher plane for the struggle for existence on a lower one who dares attempt to picture what will happen if this revolt shall not succeed these are problems full of fascination in one form or another they will persist as long as humanity itself there is only one way of getting rid of them and that is so charmingly and wittily pointed out by robert louis stevenson in his fable the four reformers that i wish to quote it four reformers met under a bramble bush they were all agreed the world must be changed we must abolish property said one we must abolish marriage said the second we must abolish god said the third i wish we could abolish work said the fourth do not let us get beyond practical politics said the first the first thing is to reduce men to a common level the first thing said the second is to give freedom to the sexes the first thing said the third is to find out how to do it the first step said the first is to abolish the bible the first thing said the second is to abolish the laws the first thing said the third is to abolish mankind from why should we change our form of government by nicholas murray butler copyright nineteen twelve by charles scribner's sons on translating the odes of horace by w p trent in a letter written on august twenty first seventeen o three to robert harley afterward earl of oxford and prime minister by dr george hicks the former scholar and non-juror there is a reference to old dr byram eaton who had read horace over as they tell me many hundred times oftener i fear than he has read the gospels dr byram eaton has escaped an article in the dictionary of national biography and so far as i know he has never been reckoned by horatians among their patron saints in view of the slur cast upon him by dr hicks i should like to propose his canonization but i should much prefer to lay a wager that he found time between his readings to try to turn some of the odes of his favourite writer into english verses probably into couplets resembling those of dryden and i should also be willing to wager that before and after making each of his versions he gave expression in some form or other to the proverbial statement that to attempt to translate horace is to attempt the impossible perhaps we owe to this proverbial impossibility the fact that the translator of horace is always with us a living antimony he writes a modest preface and then exclaiming in the words of his master nil mortalibus ardui est he tries to scale very heaven in his folly to rush blindly per vetitum nefas but because he has loved much therefore is much forgiven him to love horace and not attempt to translate him would be to flout that principle of altruism in which some modern thinkers have discovered more poetically perhaps than philosophically the motive force of civilization we love horace and hence we must try to set him forth in a way to make others love him is what all translators it would seem say to themselves consciously or unconsciously when they decide to publish their respective renditions and who shall blame them where is the critic competent to judge their work who has not himself listened to the siren song if but for a moment in his youth who has not a version of some ode of horace hid away among his papers the memory of which will doubtless forever prevent him from flinging a stone at any fellow-offender 
it is not only impossible to translate horace adequately but it is impossible to explain satisfactorily the causes of his unbounded popularity a popularity illustrated by the fact that when that well-known group of american book lovers the bibliophile society were seeking to determine what great man of letters they would first honor by issuing one or more of his works in sumptuous form they chose not an author of their own day or nation or language but a writer dead nearly two thousand years of alien race and tongue spokesman of a civilization remote and strange the horace of the immortal odes yet admirers of lucretius and of catullus tell us very plainly and insistently that this horace of the odes is not a great poet we listen respectfully to the charge and somehow we do not seem greatly to resent it we merely read the odes if possible more diligently and affectionately not it is true in the splendid bibliophile volumes but in some well-worn pocket edition that has accompanied us on our journeys or like one i own has helped us to while away the hours on a deer stand through which the deer as shy as the fawn with which the poet compared chloe simply would not run if we own such a pocket volume we leave our critical faculties in abeyance when dante in the inferno introduces horace to us along with homer and ovid and lucan for do not our hearts tell us that in the truest sense of the phrase he is worthy to walk with the greatest of this medievally assorted company we feel sure that virgil must have loved him as a man we have proof that milton admired him as a poet we deny to him the grand manner but we attribute to him every charm when we seek to analyze this charm we are left with a suspicion that after we have pointed out many of its elements such as humor vivacity kindliness sententiousness and the like there are as many others equally potent but more subtle that escape us altogether so we turn the hackneyed saying into the charm is the man and contentedly exchange analysis for enjoyment and yet we are persuaded that no author is more worthy of the painstaking detailed study characteristic of modern scholarship than is this same epicurean poet who so utterly defies analysis and would be the first were he not but dust and a shade to smile at our ponderous erudition we feel that the scholar who shall devote the best years of his life to studying the influence of horace upon subsequent writers in the chief literatures and to collecting the tributes that have been paid to his genius by the great and worthy of all lands and ages will deserve sincere benedictions we conclude in short that that exquisite epithet the well-beloved so inappropriately bestowed upon the worthless and flippant french king belongs to horace and to horace alone jure divino but this praise of horace and this defence of his translators fails to justify or explain the writing of this paper an honest confession being good for the soul i will confess that the remarks that follow were first employed to introduce some versions of selected odes i was once rash enough to publish it is not a good sportsman that shuts his eyes and bangs away with both barrels at a flock of birds and i now doubt whether i was wise in trying to bring down readers if not with my verse barrel at least with my prose barrel being older i use at present only one barrel at a time and perhaps for the same reason i am wont to try the prose barrel and fortunately i can apply to the comments i intend to make on horatian translators the quotation i used in order to mollify irate readers of my own verse renderings it came from a once popular now forgotten poet the reverend john pomfret and it ran as follows 
it will be to little purpose the author presumes to offer any reasons why the following poems appear in public for it is ten to one if he gives the true and if he does it is much greater odds whether the gentle reader is so courteous as to believe him so much has been written on the methods of horace's translators and so much remains to be written that it is hard to determine where to begin but perhaps the preface of the late professor conington to his well-known translation of the odes will furnish a proper point of departure few persons whether translators or readers are likely to object to conington's first premise that the translator ought to aim at some kind of metrical conformity to his original to reproduce an original sapphic or alcaic stanza in blank verse or in the couplets of pope is at once to repel the reader who knows horace well and to give the reader who is unacquainted with latin lyric poetry a totally erroneous conception of the metrical and rhythmical methods of the poet to render a compressed latin verse by a diffuse english one is to do injustice as conington observes to the sententiousness for which horace is justly celebrated although the english scholar had he written after the appearance of mr gladstone's attempt to render the odes might with propriety have added that the translator should not in his avoidance of diffuseness be seduced by the facility of the octosyllabic couplet to translate horace's odes into anything but quatrains except on occasions is also to offend the matriculous horatian and to mislead any reader who seeks to know the poet through an english rendering it would seem however that when professor conington insisted that an english measure once adopted for the alcaic must be used for every ode in which horace employed the stanza just named he went far forward hampering the translator who despite his promises to offend has his rights that such uniformity ought to be aimed at and that it will as a rule be aimed at is doubtless true but there is an element of the problem with which conington does not seem sufficiently to have reckoned this is rhyme which he assumed to be necessary to a successful rendition of an ode of horace a particular stanza not employing rhyme may probably be used without resulting loss in translating every ode written in a special form yet this may not be the case with a stanza employing rhymes if the translator aim as he should at a fairly though not an awkwardly literal rendering of the language of his original there will necessarily be coincidences of sound in a literal prose version of a latin stanza that will suggest a definite and advantageous arrangement of rhymes for a poetical version to adopt a certain english stanza in which to render a certain latin stanza wherever it occurs is to do away with this natural advantage which presents itself oftener than might at first be supposed concrete examples will serve to make my meaning clear the third ode of the first book the admirable sicte diva potens cipri is written in what is called the second asclepiad meter so is the delightful ninth ode of the third book the donec gratus eram we will assume that for the first of these odes the translator has chosen a quatrain with alternating rhymes a b a b following professor conington's rule of uniformity he must employ the same stanza for the second of the two odes which by the way conington himself did not do for reasons which he gave at length now the fifth stanza of the donec gratus eram runs as follows quid si prisca redit venus deductosque jugo coget enio si flava excultitur cloe rejectaque patet janua lidiae 
this may be rendered in prose what if the former love return and join with brazen yoke the parted ones if yellow-haired chloe be shaken off and the door stand open for rejected lydia if my memories does not deceive me it was this stanza and especially one word in its last verse that determined the arrangement of rhymes in a version i attempted years ago consule planco this verse seemed to run inevitably into an open stand for lydia the door it needed but a moment to detect in the first verse of the stanza a possible rhyme word the syllable ray of radit furnished moray not the most apt of rhymes with door but still sufficient as things go with amateur translators and with a perhaps pardonable tautology i wrote what if the former love once more return two other rhymes were found with little difficulty in the die of deductos and in excuditor which suggested wide and cast aside and the whole stanza omitting strictly metrical considerations appeared or rather might have appeared for i have changed it slightly as follows what if the former love once more return and yoke the sweethearts parted wide if fair-haired chloe be cast aside and open stand for lydia the door this stanza seemed to have the merit of almost complete literalness since it omitted only two epithets and i thought it had no unpardonable defects of rhythm and diction so i took it as a model and with little difficulty translated the entire ode with what success i should not say and others need not inquire the rhymes and their position in the stanza are often determined for the translator by his original or else by a prose rendering of that original seems also to be shown by the following version of the closing ode of the first book carm thirty eight the graceful persicos ode i hate your persian trappings boy your linden woven crowns annoy cease searching for the spot where blows the lingering rose to simple myrtle nothing add the myrtle misbecomes my lad nor thee nor me drinking my wine neath close-grown vine here puer boy and displicent displease or annoy seem to determine but not merely the first rhyme but the rhyme arrangement a a and it seems but a glance at the close of the first stanza of the original to show that another word rhyming with boy would be hard to obtain it follows that if we are to have a quatrain the third and fourth verses should probably be made to rhyme b b and it is not difficult to comply with this requirement to cast the second stanza in the mould of the first it is alas too true that no equivalent to blows will be found in horace that sedelos cura has been unceremoniously thrown aside that the poet does not specifically mention wine as the beverage he liked to drink in his rustic arbour but a rose which horace does mention certainly blows or blooms very often in english verse it is not too far-fetched to get nothing ad and lad out of nihil alabores and ministrum and vine vitae has suggested wine to many generations of poets but it is rhyme suggestions and their influence upon the choice of stanzaic form that have occasioned this mild protest against professor conington's precepts of rigid stanzaic conformity i am convinced from the above examples and from many more not only that uniformity of stanza is not to be strictly insisted upon when one is employing rhymes but also that translators should search more diligently than they appear to do for the rhyme suggestions implicit in so many horatian stanzas upon other points it is easier to agree with conington 
for most of the odes the iambic movement natural to english is preferable as milton may be held to have perceived he abandoned rhyme in his celebrated version of the quismulta gracilis one and five and hence he had an excellent opportunity to indulge in experiments in so-called logatic verse but he clung to the iambic movement and the fact is significant although not to be pressed since he gave us no other rendering of an entire ode here too however i must plead for a careful study of each ode by the would-be translator for there seem to be cases in which it would be almost disastrous to attempt a version in iambics such a case is presented by the beautiful diffusere nives four and seven the iambic renderings of professor conington and sir theodore martin seem to stray far from the original movement as far as the former's no scaping death proclaims the year does from the diction of horace or of any other good poet it is true that english dactyls are dangerous things especially in translations with a padding or packing which is natural to the measure when employed in english is increased by the padding inevitably introduced into a translation from a synthetic into an analytic language yet the dactylic movement of the first archinolochian in which the diffusere nives is written is hardly without great loss to be represented by any use of english iambics it presents more difficulty than the introduction of something resembling the movement of dactylic hexameters proper into our blank verse when a translator makes up his mind to attempt a close approximation to the horatian meter it would seem that he should eschew the use of rhyme as likely to operate against that effect of likeness to the original which he is striving to secure but since the use of rhyme in lyric poetry appears as conington held to be essential at present if the english version is to be acceptable as poetry this close approximation can be desirable in a few special cases only it will not do to dogmatize on such matters but it may be safely said that no poet not even milton or whitman has yet accustomed the english or the american ear to the use of rhymeless verse in lyrical poetry here and there a successful rhymeless lyric such as collins's ode to evening and tennyson's alcaics on milton shows us that rhymeless stanzas may occasionally be used for lyric purposes with good effect but thus far those translators of horace who have made a practice of eschewing rhyme have failed as a rule like the first lord lytton footnote just as i am revising these comments the two volumes of the earl of lytton's admirable biography of his grandfather find themselves on my table as was to be expected they contain several interesting references to horace he is the model for popular lyrics and certainly the greatest lyrist extant again observe how wonderfully he compresses and studies terseness as if afraid to bore an impatient idle audience secondly when he selects his picture how it stands out cleopatra's flight the speech of regulus the vision of hades in the ode on his escape from the tree etc End of footnote. to give us versions that charm yet charm is what the translator of horace should chiefly endeavour to convey i am still more confident that conington was right when he insisted that the english rendering should be confined within the same number of lines as the latin he was surely right when he taxed sir theodore martin who so frequently violated this rule with an exuberance that is totally at variance with the severity of the classics such exuberance is almost certain to result if the translator abandon the strict number of lines into which the roman poet compressed his thought it results too from the use of stanzas 
of over four verses each there is no other rule of translating that will so effectively ensure a successful retention of the diction of the original as this of the line for line rendering whenever such rendering is possible and that the diction and the thought of the poet should be more closely followed than is usually the case admits of no manner of doubt we have already seen that a close scrutiny of the latin will often suggest an almost literal rendering of the thought and diction such a rendering is more desired by the reader who is familiar with horace than by the reader who is not but it will be both pleasing and serviceable to the latter if the quality of the literalness be not too slavishly obtained metrical considerations and general smoothness ought as a matter of course to weigh with every translator but surely they ought not to outweigh accurate rendering of diction and thought especially the diction and thought of a poet so felicitous as horace in his phrasing and so just and happy in his observation of life in this connection i am not sure but that conington went too far when he recommended the horatian translator to hold by the diction of our own augustan period that the age of pope corresponds in many ways with that of horace is true enough and the student of the poetry of the eighteenth century who cares at all for the poets he studies is almost sure to be an admirer of the roman bard whom pope imitated but the diction of horace does not strike one as stilted while that of pope often does and for a translator of our own days to employ a diction that seems in any way stilted is fatal not merely to the popularity and hence to the present effectiveness of his work but also in all probability to its intrinsic value there is a good deal of the commonplace also in the poetry produced in the eighteenth century but commonplace the translator of horace can least afford to be horace himself may approach dangerously near the commonplace yet he seems always to miss it by a dexterous and graceful turn the translator running after will miss this turn sufficiently often as it is he cannot therefore afford to steep himself in a literature that has a tendency to the commonplace but just as little can he afford to steep himself in the romantic poets from shelley to swinburne a translation whether from the greek or the latin imbibing the luxuriance of imagination and phrasing characteristic of these modern poets may satisfy a reader still in his intellectual teens but the reader who makes use of a translation of horace is likely to have passed out of that period of immaturity it may be heretical but i fancy that the translator of horace who steeps himself in keats or tennyson will be even less likely to give us the ideal rendering than the translator who steeps himself in pope luxuriance and elegance may at times be more displeasing than excessive polish and point to mention the eighteenth century is to bring up the thought of horatian paraphrases a successful paraphrase is sometimes better as poetry than a good poetical translation and it not infrequently conveys a juster idea of the spirit of horace it is almost needless to praise the work in this kind of mr austin dobson and of the late eugene field but a paraphrase however good can never be entirely satisfying either to the reader that knows horace or to the reader that desires to know him nor can a prose version be thoroughly satisfactory what is wanted is not merely the drift of the poet's thought but as near as may be what he actually sang the paraphrase may sing and the prose version may give us the thought in nearly equivalent words which may carry along with them not a little of the poet's feeling but neither answers all our requirements as well as a good rendering in verse may do such a rendering for example as that which the late goldwin smith gave of the cello tonantem three and five 
yet there is surely room for all these forms of approach to a poet who is paradoxically enough at one and the same time the most approachable and the most unapproachable of writers but one could write forever about the topic of poetical translation in general and of the translation of horace's odes in particular it is a subject about which people will differ to the end of time a subject of the principles of which will never be thoroughly exemplified in practice still it always seems to fascinate those who discuss it and they have a way of hoping that what they have said about it will not be without value to those who want to read about it hope springs eternal in the human breast said the poet who also wrote of his great master lines that have not been surpassed in their kind horace still charms with graceful negligence and without method talks us into sense will like a friend familiarly convey the truest notions in the easiest way end of section twenty recording by james carson end of oxford book of american essays chosen by brander matthews